You're listening to Under a Red Glow, a photography podcast covering the wide spectrum of the art and history of photography with an emphasis on chemical, darkroom, and alternative-based processes. Be sure to visit us at www.underaredglow.com. And now your host, John Milliker Jr. Hello and welcome to episode 41 of the Under a Red Glow podcast. My name is John Milliker and I'm a full-time photographer who practices, teaches, and demonstrates nearly every photographic process in history including modern digital gear and techniques. And with me in studio is my co-host and lovely wife, Christine. She practices and demonstrates many processes and is our entry-level process and kids class instructor. Welcome, Christine. Hello. I'm stuffed up. I think it's allergies. I know it's allergies, right? I was going to say, it's been brutal this year. I mean, I wonder if the fact that we, we just didn't get out. I mean, we got out. We got out a lot last year. But I'm wondering if the fact that you know, when allergies started to hit, we had the, you know, the thing, the thing happened. We had the biggest part of stay home. Right. Happened like when, when allergies were really bad for me and, and I didn't, I didn't get affected at all. Even though we did go out, we started, we started going out to a lot, a lot of parks. A lot of our county and state parks became free to visit. Yeah. So we, you know, we went out. We went out and got outside. We you know, all of our events and pretty much everything had gotten canceled. So we went out and enjoyed our park. So it's not like we weren't exposed to a lot of the a lot of the allergens that were in the air. But and and nothing, absolutely nothing affected me last year. I didn't get spring allergies and I didn't get fall allergies. But had- now whew, I've had a little bit, but this spring, oh my goodness. Wow. And I swear the pollen is twice as bad as normal. Maybe it's just me. I don't know. But yeah, it's been brutal. They said we were supposed to get locusts this year. Are they are they like miniature locusts? <laughs> I I don't think it's that season yet, dear. Yeah, I think it is later. When do the locusts come? Um, the summer. Oh, that'll be fun. I remember I remember locusts. What is it? Every how many years is it? Seven years. Seven years. I, rem- I remember the last time locusts came through and it damaged so many trees. But it's like every twenty-one or something that it's really bad or something. Right. I think I remember reading that it's every like twenty-one or seventeen years or whatever it is. But because of all, because of a lot of construction work and grading of the land and and whatever, they dig up a lot of the. I guess a lot of the colonies. So they come out and and they get kind of off the main track. But this one for this year is the main the main colony that that we're all supposed to be. Yeah, I think this is the about. big, big year. Oh, that'll be fun. Yeah. I uh ear piercing cicada sounds. <laughs> and and like I said, I mean the trees they damages they damage tons of trees because they they latch one of these trees and, and the, just the weight of them. They also eat the leaves and stuff, don't they? I don't know. I don't know what they eat. They eat something. Probably. I'm sure, I'm sure something gets eaten up. So, I don't know. We've been enjoying we've been enjoying the weather while we can. Of course, we here in Maryland, we went from, what? We went from winter to summer in the, in the span of two days, which is kind of a Maryland thing. Isn't that the way it always is? It was. It was cold, 
one day, and then the next day it was almost 90. I think it was 88. 88 degrees. We went to our local park that is is on the water on the Chesapeake Bay here in Maryland, and thankfully there was a breeze, so we were able to able to do that, kind of stay a little bit cool, and that was about it. And then today, it, it actually started out nice this morning, but the wind came through, very nasty wind, and it, it had gotten cold, it had gotten chilly. Yeah, when I got home, it was starting to get cold. Oh, I had gotten home around 7.30, and it was it was chilly. I didn't have a I didn't have a jacket or anything. And you wouldn't think that you know it was ninety three days ago. I wouldn't need a jacket, but uh, but here we are. That's always fun. It's always like this in April. You um you had gotten a chance to. We talked about last week's podcast. You kind of going all in on the lens baby system. Yeah. And you had gotten a chance, and I I had gotten a chance to play with them too. But you had gotten a chance to play with some of the lens babies. Do you have any any information to report on them? I think I'm really going to like using them once I get better at the manual focus with them and really figuring out where the focal point is for each one and how best to focus where I want it. I just need to experiment with it more, but I, I'm going to like the 35 millimeter for landscapes. The 50 millimeter is also good for landscapes. The 60 and the 80, I'm going to like for more close-up and macro. Well, yeah, that's the standard lens lens physics right there. Yeah. But, yeah, that's good. And and I tried out the, I think I tried out the Edge. I was playing with the Edge, and uh, and we were there, and there were some people fishing on the bank. And I was kind of playing around with putting that, that, that slice of focus you know in different in different locations around the lens and i was really happy with with how adjustable it was i've got to say i still like the old um the 3g was the one that i had on my canon lens canon body and i think the the latest one of that was the control freak i i i gotta say i think i like the old style better just because this is kind of clunky, kind of clunky. Okay, I want to loosen, I want to loosen the ring. I want to move around my, move around my, uh, you know, push and pull the the lens baby, and then I want to I want to focus in and out. But the problem is, then I have to lock the ring in order to turn the focus ring of the lens. So that's your that would is what would be would be your your push and pull. That is your focus now where you're twisting. But the problem is if you're still, if you're locked down, if you're not locked down, that ring is just going to spin. But you have to lock it down, get your subject in focus, and then if you want to move it again, you've got to unlock the thing and then place it where you want. Because I'm, I'm somebody that I don't, I don't lock the thing. I would rather that thing be kind of, kind of free-floating and I can push and pull and, you know, one hand on the, on the shutter button, one hand on the lens baby, and, and go. So I don't know. I I like the control freak better. I know these new lenses are something that's a lot a lot better for the system, but I really I really miss the ability to not only go up down left right but push and pull at the same time. Where now you can't go up down left right with it with it with it locked. So therefore you have to lock it, change your focus. It's it's kind of a it's kind of a pain to be honest with you. Having never used the original one, 
I can't compare, but I was not necessarily locking it and still playing around with moving where the focus was and stuff. Maybe I just was figuring that out. I don't know. Maybe yeah. I wasn't doing as good a job at it as I thought I was. It's uh yeah, it's it's interesting. But uh, you know, we we won't let you play with the other one because you may you may not like this this new one. But either way, it's you're going to have to learn how to use it. It's going to take a little bit of time to figure it out. And it just it just is what it is. I had also played with the the twist, which is the petsful like lens, and I was enjoying it. I was having a lot of fun with it. I think I'm going to enjoy playing with the 60 millimeter twist. Um, the 80 is going to be my favorite for the edge, and the sweet I haven't quite figured out, but I'm going to have fun playing with all of them. Right, but the twist uh, it 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 looked just like petsful lens. I mean, that's exactly what it's supposed to do, and, and they were kind of cool enough to even make this twist lens have a brass, kind of like a brass-looking outer ring. Yeah. And what I, I liked about the twist the, the most was I was able to take it to the ex, the extreme in, in tilting it, and I was able to kind of put that that image, uh, you know, the, 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 extraints of the, the, the extent of the image to the – on my sensor – so that you could actually see kind of like a circular pattern up top, down, left, or right. I really enjoyed that. I'm going to like being able to move that focus to the left, right, up, and down. Mm-hmm. And which we can't do with our other Petsful lenses. Right. I mean, the Petsful lens that we have from the lo- the Lomography people, I can't talk today because I am, like I said, I'm completely stuffed up with uh, with allergies. But the, the lens from the Lomography people are meant for... You know they don't want they don't want to twist it. They don't want to tilt and shift and push and pull. They just want to make a nice lens that that would that was going to act like a standard Petsful lens. And I and I appreciate it for that. Right. I can't imagine that. And we still need to do a a test of these. We still need to test the Petsful versus the twist, not twisted. You know, not moved up, down, left, right, and kind of see what what the quality is there. But yeah, it's pretty interesting. I was enjoying it, and I too had a problem with focusing. But I realized that if I I bounced out into live view mode, my you know our our Nikon D eight fifties they have a focus peaking, and it was really interesting locking down that lens, and then while focus peaking was active, and what that does is it actually highlights what is in focus on the on the in the scene, and then moving that you know kind of shifting things around and moving that focus in and out it was really interesting to see how it all how it all kind of progressed to the frame i really had a lot of fun doing that yeah that's when i started to get the better focus is when i changed to live view and started using that that's before For video, that i was excited about video but the problem with video is there's no focus peaking in the video mode that I that I know of. I, maybe I should look into that, but I don't think there's any focus peaking when you're when you're shooting video. And it was kind of a, a balance of push and pull and try to get as close as you can. But remember, you know, it's not always about sharpness, right? So while you want to get as sharp as you can, a a missed focus is not the end of the world if it's a if it's a good image, right? It's interesting. Yeah, I, I want to experiment more, and I think I'm going to have a lot of fun if I'm in just one of those moods where I just want to play. 
Right. This is just like we like we talked about before. This is just like a fisheye lens, or just like a tilt shift lens, or just like uh, anything else. Any specialty stuff. It's going to be a a purpose, and you may not you may not pack every single lens, baby lens you have every time you go out. You're right. going to kind of be you're going to kind of do an educated guess of here's where I'm going to be. Here's what I'm shooting. Here's what's out there. And, you know, I'm kind of feeling, I'm kind of feeling edge effects or I'm kind of feeling sweet effects or I'm kind of feeling bokeh effects or I'm kind of feeling petsfully. And you're going to choose, choose something based on that. Right. But it's definitely not something you're going to take out every single lens of the pet of the lens baby system. Every single time you go out. I agree with that. And the one part that I haven't had a chance to play with at all yet is the creative bokeh lens, which I want to play with. I just, it came a few days after all the rest of them. Right. And, and that, so, and that lens being, and it, it is, I, I think I talked about it before it came, but I was worried that it didn't have a, I guess I wasn't worried it didn't have a lens element because it had to have have to have had a lens element in it. But I think I mentioned something about it. But there is a, it's a it's a a lens, but it's a standard basic lens. And then there's a magnetic ring that you can drop in these bokeh shapes, like a star or a heart or a tree. And I don't I don't even know what else they've got. And then you've got regular circles as well. Yes. And somewhere, 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 I have mine. But I, I had made some of my own bokeh rings a long time. We're talking 20 years ago. But somewhere in my photography stuff, there is the exact same little gray magnet removal insertion tool that has, that has all the same bokeh you know, little aperture discs, but has a couple that I made personally. And now we would probably laser them. We would laser stuff just like we lasered the the extra apertures for your Petzval lens. Yeah. But I think back then I had used a, uh, a drag knife cutter and what that does. And then I use a, a sheet of magnetic, magnetic stuff, magnetic film that was, that was not thin, but it wasn't so thick that I couldn't use drag knife. And it just, uh, it's like a CNC machine that drags a knife. When you think about vi- uh, vinyl cutters, vinyl cutters are the exact same way. The silhouette or the, the cricket machines Mm-hmm. Or drag knife, the drag knife cutters. Okay, but we can laser them. The only problem with lasering magnet uh, magnet stuff is it it just makes a mess. But I mean, we we do it all the time, especially when we are making the the laser templates for the magnet templates for like Rollins oil or carbon printing. Right. So that's what we've we've done before. But uh, but yeah, it's 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 definitely cool. I don't know if I would recommend somebody go out and buy like every lens. We're just a little crazy like that. But the thinking is maybe, I don't know if anybody rents these. Maybe rent a couple. See if you've got some friends that that can let you play with one. But basically, 35 millimeter, 50 millimeter, 80 millimeter, you're going to know what what the lens is going to cover. And by going online and looking at some, some sample images or some sample videos... You're going to know what each one does. So even before we had gotten them, I knew that I liked I liked the edge stuff. Yeah. Because I know that I can put a a, a razor sharp line of, of, of in focus 
at any any kind of stage throughout the image. I thought that was pretty cool. But at least you at least you know. And then they've got a couple of those. Uh, I think you've you started off your kit with the like the creativity pack or something. Something like that, yeah. And it came with one one of the composer pros and like three lenses. Yeah, I believe it was the Sweet Thirty Five, Sweet Fifty Five, and Edge Eighty. Yeah. Well, either way, you can go online. You can probably find a couple of those different kits and find and find the one that works best for you. Yeah, there's a couple different options. I like the set we got because it also included two of the macro tubes. Have you tried those yet? Yes. Um, they, I, they work? I, they, it worked really well with the 80 millimeter edge is what I used it with. Very cool. I had fun with that. Good. Anything else? Have we gotten anything else new? Um, have we gotten anything else new? Um, we ordered a, ordered a Jackery. Oh yeah. We ordered a, one of those Jackery. So it's called a solar generator, which is basically a, a big box with a lithium battery and it charges different ways. It charges from the wall. It charges from your car, it charges via solar, but we're, we're planning a, a camping trip probably, uh, somewhere in July. And we're going up, and we're completely out of the range of any electricity. And we did this trip. We did this trip last year as well. Yes. And it was always a struggle to keep our camera batteries charged. About halfway through, we went down the mountain. We found a place that we can kind of sit and charge some batteries, and that wasn't enough. That was nowhere near enough. So we we got this Jackery unit that's going to be coming in the next week. And it's the the Explorer 1000 with the two 100-watt solar panels. Yes. And we're hoping that's going to that's gonna make, make traveling and camping a, a good thing. We're hoping it'll give us a little more versatility and ability to charge our laptops and our cameras. Camera battery, drone battery. So we're, we're kind of excited about that because we've been looking at them for a while and the Jackery is not the best unit out there, honestly. It doesn't have the it doesn't have the best life, which is how many times you can you can charge the battery before it starts getting it starts starts wearing out. It doesn't have the best input. We can plug 200 watts of solar panels into it, but it's only going to do like 160, 150. I've seen some 125. It's only going to do so much. And, but the problem is, is the Jackery solar panels are just top notch. We they like, seem really, really nicely made. We like the way they fold. We like how small they get, how flat they get. Well, I mean, other, other panels are smaller. Other panels are flatter, but That's it's true. just the, everything we've read, these Jackery panels, you're paying a premium for them, but they're made in the United States, apparently with United States made solar panels, which... You know, it's it, it it brings a premium, brings a premium to a product, and it's it's got a nice rubberized coating. It's got a the solar panels are are coated, make them easy to to wipe off. Uh, it can take a little bit of rain, even though they say don't don't get them wet. It can take a little bit of rain, and and you feel like you're protected. And the same thing with the Jackery. The Jackery, you can everything else that I saw was always a cobbled together looking cable. We looked at the one, um, I can't remember what it was. It was called, it wasn't the Blue Eddy. It was something different. 
The Peleon? Peleon? Something like that? Whichever one this was, it had a, it almost looked like a, like a miniature computer power supply on a, on the end of a cord <laughs> and it had this loud fan on it. It's, it kind of, kind of the, the best of all the evils. And even though the Jackery, it, it's not the best on nearly enough categories, the, the build quality, the ease of use. The simplicity of the connectors, I can I can be assured that Christine can set this up without a problem. Everything else, you got to turn this on, you got to turn that off. Make sure you don't do this. Make sure you don't do that. It just seemed like a like a pain in the butt. And the reason we bring that up is because uh, when we when we go do our our camping trips, we want to be able to use the drone. We want to be able to 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 shoot video. We want to be able to shoot a digital. And and then we want to be able to run our laptops, uh, run our radios. We we go to a place that that there is no cell phone service, and even the none of the rangers have have phones. There's no hardwired phones there, so we run radios in order we can. We have a, I run a, a weather radio and I run a, a two way radio down to uh, down to the world below, and it's it's just completely necessary. We could also power. Uh, battery you know we can also power ac stuff you know if if you wanted to coat uh coat cyanotype paper you can run a fan at night to to dry them you can then run a a uv panel to to make exposures at night there's just so many things that can be done it's and and we're like i said we're getting kind of excited about it it didn't have a pd charging slot but we have other ways we can get that if we need it yeah, that would have been nice to have a PD that USB-C. Was- and what PD is called power delivery. And that's what charges our laptops. It charges some of your bigger tablets. And it would be nice to not have to bring a power brick for our laptops. But our thinking was PD, it uses the it uses a, a controller that, that converts DC, which is what the battery is, and then you have the the AC jack, which converts DC to AC, right? Right. Well, some of the tests we saw, the the AC inverter was a little bit more efficient. So we we need to do our own testing, for sure. But it may be it may be worth it to get another or take or take our laptop power charging cables with us and charge them that way. But the the ability to to bring a a u a AC to to PD brick, plug it in the laptop and have it charge as well it works. So, I don't know, kind of interesting. Yeah, we've got some. Uh, we we talked about making this a listener question podcast, and uh, we have a couple questions that we've been storing. Uh, all these questions we've already answered in email. But uh, I wanted to to just kind of read over a couple of them and talk about our thought process for for some of these listener questions. You want to get us started, Christine? I have them I have them written down. Okay, Rob asks. I've started working with cyanotypes, and the cheap watercolor paper paper works just fine. Other papers people seem to recommend are a few dollars a sheet. What's the benefit? That was kind of like a tongue twister. <laughs> Other papers people. <laughs> Other people papers. All right. What's the benefit of 
expensive watercolor papers. Now, now what Rob is probably saying is there he's using the the cheap watercolor paper, which is likely the like the Canson XL, maybe the Strathmore, maybe dollar store stuff. I have no idea. But the thing about that is it's going to be cold press. Right. Cold press watercolor papers are easier to to make and they are typically they're not as smooth. When you start talking about these papers that are up to a couple dollars a sheet, you're talking typically hot press papers. You got your arches, you got your uh, what is the other some of the other stuff? Arches, um, arches patine is a is a good one for platinum processes. I know some people have used them for cyanotype as well. Uh, I think you got one called Stonehenge. I, I I don't have the list on on top of my head right now, but those papers are they're going to be fine papers to use, but What's going to happen with the hot press is hot press is going to have a much smoother finish. They're right? going to be more artistic or not for, necessarily well, more hot, hot press papers are going to be a lot more like professional papers, more refined. And when you term? when you coat and brush or rod coat or foam brush or regular brush your your cyanotype solution on there, it's going to it's going to make a little bit of a of a sharper image because you don't have all that uh, all that texture and those bumpies and and everything in there. Not that not that cyanotypes make an, a, an extremely sharp image anyway because you are still coating the emulsion into the the fibers of the paper. But you're going to get a little bit of an of an extra crispness or sharpness to it because that surface is so so clean. Basically now, sometimes with your, your with your watercolor, cheap watercolor paper, another problem with cheap watercolor paper is sometimes it's it can be it's got these buffers in it, and what the buffers will do to your 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 chemistry is sometimes it contaminate it, sometimes make it not as uh, not as sharp, uh, not not as sharp, but not as as contrasty, and sometimes it just doesn't just doesn't work out too well with these these bufferings in them and what a lot of people a lot of people do is if you're if you're working with a cheap watercolor paper that you say works fine try to look up um stripping out this buffering out of this paper and see if you maybe get a little bit better and the way a lot of people do that and and i don't have my notes with me right now i should have had them but they will use an oxalic acid or i've actually seen people use citric acid and I believe, I believe it was a 6% citric acid solution, which I believe was double of the oxalic, was, was 3%. So look these up. But you, you create a, a liquid you just, with distilled water. You put this acid in there and you dissolve it nice and, nice and neat. And you put these papers in there. And if there's a buffer in there, typically you'll see these little bubbles. You know, not, not a ton of bubbles, but you'll see the occasional bubble pop and and rise the surface off these off these papers and you leave that paper in there you can put a test it first to see if you like it but if you do you can put the whole you could put a dozen sheets in this water at a time just make sure you shuffle them shuffle them around put one sheet in using tongs push it under the water put a next sheet in using tongs push it under the water shuffle it to the bottom you know things like that, and and try that. You may you may get a a better looking paper, or if you're using watercolor paper that just looks 
terrible, it may be because of the buffering inside. And, and try stripping that buffering out. But that's, uh, you know, that's a that's a good benefit. Rob, if you are using, if you're happy with, with watercolor paper, try other papers. Try some of the mixed media or the ink papers or the canvas papers or try some, uh, if you've got some, some cheap photographic printer papers, try them out. Try everything you have because you may find something that works out really well that you like. Uh, I've got a couple photographic uh, inkjet printer papers that work quite well with cyanotypes. And they look fantastic and they, and they hold those brush strokes. If you want a brush stroked layer uh, border, they're going to hold those brush strokes perfectly. Try fabrics. Um, one thing that I've that I've I've seen uh, lately, and it's been it's been forever since I've I've done this, and I I've actually forgotten about it. But rice paper. Now rice paper, when you look at it sideways, and it's going to rip on you. But if you're very careful about you know floating it, getting it in the solution, getting it out of the solution, hanging it without uh, what, you know what you do is you take. Uh, you take two sticks and you sandwich the top and then you clip that. That way it's putting pressure on the entire top edge of the rice paper. And then you can let that dry. Um, what I used to do is I would put this rice paper on a piece of glass and that's when I would, I would saturate that. And I seem to remember I would either foam roller it. It's like I said, it's been a long time. I would either foam roller it or I would, or I would uh, spray it on, or I can't remember what I did, but I would either foam roller it or I would squeegee it off, and I would let it dry on that piece of piece of glass. And and nowadays you can use acrylic without a problem. And as long as you're you're careful with it, rice paper shouldn't shouldn't curl. I wouldn't think because what you're doing is you're you're basically coating both. You know you're basically coating the entire piece of the paper. Unlike when you're when you're coating other papers with certain emulsions, say carbon printing, it's going to curl like crazy because as that as that gelatin dries, it's going to create that curl where the back the back of the paper doesn't. And sometimes when you have curl with paper, the way to fix that is to coat both sides, either float it, submerge it, or just just happen to brush both sides. Or one of the other things that we that we'll typically do is, especially with carbon printing. I will, before we, before we started getting that yuppo heavy, I would coat two pieces of paper or two, two substrates. And then I would, I would use uh, the binder clips and I would binder clip the heck out of them back to back. I would take two pieces of paper back to back. That way, when they curl, they're kind of fighting against each other. And that always seemed to work out pretty well. Yeah. Next question, Alex asks, what should I buy to expose alternative processes indoors? There's a couple different options. It depends on how much you want to spend. Well, we're coming in the spring. Why not? Why not the sun? Why are we worrying about indoors, Christine? Rain. You can always use it. You can do it 24 hours a day. How about repeatability? Yeah. Repeatability is a big thing. When, when somebody says, oh, just go outside... And, and expose a cyanotype or any other alternative process, expose it out to the sun, you know, you're, you don't know exactly how much UV light you're getting. And every day is different and every day of the year is different. So. Now, if you're a pinhole person, 
And when I say pinhole person, I mean you're throwing caution to the wind and you're letting the universe figure out what your photo is going to look like. You can do this outside. You can do this outdoors. Just look for your telltale signs. Use a split frame back or for cyanotypes, look for that bronzing look that, that, we, that we always talk about. And then pull it. And then so what? Let's say you're making a, a you're making a print, you're making a photogram, you've got a leaf or a feather or a doodad on it, and you're making a photogram. Who cares if it's exactly perfect, right? However, if you're printing negatives, whether they're film negatives or digital negatives or wet plate negatives or glass plate negatives, that's when you really want the repeatability. That's when you want to, okay, I'm going to make a a print from this negative. No matter what alternative process, I'm going to put it underneath this this indoor light for 10 minutes. And then you write your note. I did this for 10 minutes. And then when you do it and it's too much or it's too little, you can then keep your meticulous notes. You can't do that with the sun because a completely clear sunny day in June – is going to be completely different than a completely clear sunny day in October. If you've got a little bit of haziness, if you've got some clouds, if uh, I was, I was uh, when we were researching the the solar generator, one guy said, "Oh well, yesterday, uh, yesterday this was really good, but I've you know apparently there's a there's a forest fire, and even though I can't see it, I can see that the solar panels are not pulling in as much power because." I saw a weather I saw a report that the smoke is entering the atmosphere and it's actually blocking some of the UV. So you do not know exactly how much UV light you're getting. Now there's probably UV meters and and things and all stuff like that, but leave the sun for the the projects that don't need perfect tonality and bring everything inside for when you want perfect tones, right? You want something that's repeatable, something that's modifiable, adjustable, and everything. Well, what are the options for alternative processes indoors? You need UV light. We run, <laughs> how many things do we have now, Christine? We run about four or five different ones. Now, for Christine, when she takes when she takes uh, and, and sets up a class, she's got these UV LED strips that I, I built for. I bought these strips. I put them on the, the inside of these. What are they? Those are like the little... Those plastic drawers, like the stackable drawers. Or the, shelves like right, you the, put on your desk and stuff. Right, like an inbox and an outbox and putting yeah. all your junk mail in. And it was big enough that she could pl- that that she could slide under a clipboard with the, uh, with the student's cyanotype or whatever process and a piece of glass, and the bulldog clips, the binder clips. And I I glued these UV strips like an inch apart, three-quarters of an inch apart, half inch apart, I don't remember. And then I soldered them up, I wired them up, and and these are, these are perfectly fine. They work pretty well. When we talk about UV, we can also talk about on, on, uh, on line, you can get kind of these flood these like flood pl- panels that are uv mm-hmm. and you can do the same thing you can sit there and you can place your 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 image on your contact frame or your clipboard with a piece of glass up against the wall 
you can then take this UV panel and shine it towards it and, and get pretty good. The problem with that is sometimes these UV panels, they're, you know, you need to, you need to shine them on a wall and make sure that there's not a hot spot. And there's going to be a hot spot somewhere in the middle, and you need to kind of gauge where that hot spot is, and then you need to, to, to back the panel up far enough to, to do that. Otherwise, you're going to have a hot spot in the middle, and as it, as it trails off, it's going to get lighter and lighter and lighter, right? Right. A, a way to get a, around those hot spots sometimes, and I, I do this for some of my I, – I like antique bottles, my thing is antique bottles, and I love photograms of antique bottles. So the problem is when you're photographing an antique bottle, you do not want a soft light. And by soft light, I'm talking about these lights here, which have the reflections, and, and the, the UV panels on the inside are like two inches by two inches. That's still soft light, and it's not going to make every little detail of that bottle crisp and sharp. So what I typically do is I will do an overnight exposure with this this light and I will cover the front with foil and I will cut a like half inch circle in the middle. And that is basically making a pinhole light projector and every every bit of that light that hits that bottle is going to cast a shadow on my paper that's going to be nice and sharp and crisp. Though just make sure that you're not overheating this. I I usually have a fan that I blow on the back and I don't put that aluminum foil on the front of the glass. I kind of make it bowed. That way there's a little bit of airflow in there. And that, that typically works out really well. Right. Our, our main, uh, we, have, we have two main UV exposure boxes. And the first one is, I want to say it's nine tubes side by side by side by side. I believe they're 18-inch tubes, nine of them. And they're the GE housing. And they're the UV, the UV tubes, 18-inch tubes, or maybe they're 13-inch tubes. I can't remember. I can't remember, but, but there's it, a lot of them. Uh, you know, I think they're 19 because we can fit that that large antique contact frame under there. Yes. And I believe that's when I when I when I built it. That's um. That's what I I built that around. But, didn't, didn't you build it for the coffee table originally? <laughs> Yeah, um, well, I didn't. When we're talking about building the the actual exposure box, I, I built it for the dark room. I built it to fit that, and I also built it to sit on top of our uh, Newark machine, which is going to be the next thing we talk about. But yes, um, when I didn't have something that I was playing with them, I had the the Newark. I didn't really want to mess too much with uh, another thing in the dark room. So what I did was our coffee table in the living room was perfectly sized and it had like a like a recess up underneath. So I, I screwed all of these UV black light bulbs in under the coffee table. I put a I put a switch underneath so that you can you couldn't see it. You couldn't tell at all what was underneath there. And yeah. So what? I was I was making I was making prints under the coffee table in the in the living room. But eventually, I, I was a little bit worried because UV light, as I started doing it more and more, and you started doing it more, I was worried about the UV light bleaching the, the carpet in the living room. And that's all I need is a is a contact frame-shaped square <laughs> in the middle of a, li- of a living room carpet that, um, like a photo, when you're making a photogram on a carpet, 
um, anthotype, I should say, anthotype on carpet. So that's when I built the box, and I wired it up really nice. And this box had, you want to make sure you keep, that's another thing, you want to make sure you keep your your coated paper cool. So this uh, this UV light box that I created has has uh, three holes for like 80 millimeter fans, 70 millimeter fan. I can't remember what the size they are, but I have and I have I have a, I have a switch on it. I have a switch for UV. I've got a switch for the fan. <clears throat> Excuse me, and that goes into a timer box. Perfect, perfect every time. Sometimes with UV, you can get a little bit. Uh, you can get a little bit more power out of it. Let's say, let's say you start creating something with cold bulbs, and it takes ten minutes. Where you come back and you put something in there with the bulbs already warmed up, and you do ten minutes, you may be overexposed because it takes a little bit of time for that bulb to warm up, and therefore put out the 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 correct amount of UV light. So that's something to keep in mind if you're doing ten minutes and the first image of the night is great, and everyone beyond that is is overexposed. The next unit is the Newark. And what the Newark is, it's a plate burner. It's a mercury halide lamp, which is blinding, 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 blinding. And it was it's mostly made for like t-shirt people, like making the the silk screens, the emulsion, you know, make the emulsion silk silk screens expose it clean out the you know whatever wasn't exposed and it has a vacuum has a vacuum table built into it but i don't always like to use that because first of all the bulbs are expensive second of all they're bright i mean i've got a pair of of goggles that i wear and it just lights the entire dark room up i can't do anything if i have several coated piece of paper i've got to hide them it lights every crack in that dark room up but the good thing about this is the the is it uh, mercury mercury halide mercury halide light. The beauty of this is that light bulb gets more intense as it heats up. But the good thing about this is this new arc you 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 put in how many units of light you want. So you've got something that's easily repeatable, and there's a sensor in the back. And I always tell Christine, whatever you do, don't cover up that sensor because that if that sensor doesn't see it's getting light, it's gonna pretend it's gonna think that bulb's burnt out and it's gonna keep going and going and going. So if it's a cold bulb, that sensor picks up the light and those units tick off slower. And they and they speed up as they get warmer and warmer and warmer. And if it's a warm bulb, you've already been you've already been making several exposures that evening, it's gonna it's gonna click off a lot quicker. So I hope that I hope that answered your question. I would start with those. I would start with those uh, UV panels. We had we bought a, pa- a two pack of eighty watt panels, and they're they're not eighty watt. There's no way in in heck they're eighty watt, but that'll at least, at least get you started. And we expanded them as we went. Like he started with so many and said maybe more will fit in there, and they did. And well, I'm talking about the UV panels. I'm talking about the 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 panels that go on a tripod. Oh. Go on a light stand. Yeah, and, I forgot. And that. those work out really well. I would say go with that because that's going to be your 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 ready to go. Uh, your ready to go solution. Where if you'd gotten these these LED strips with the UV lights, you've got to you got to know how to solder, you've got to know how to plug them in, 
they typically, you know, sometimes they do, sometimes they don't come with a power uh, power brick. So you've got to match up your voltage and your amperage. And, uh, yeah, you can do it. You can learn how to do it. But it's it's more work. Is it is it worth it? Absolutely. Uh, next would be those uh, those UV bulbs, for sure. And don't get the curly cues. The curly cues didn't do anything for me. Um, but you can get UV bulbs. You can mount them and, and go that route. And then finally, if you are if you are big into it, then yeah, get yourself a uh, a, a nice used secondhand Newark plate burner. We went we we actually bought our secondhand and went to go pick it up, and the thing wouldn't wouldn't turn on. And we're kind of freaking out because we know how how much those those bulbs are. So uh, the the company said, well, we'll we'll buy you a bulb, but you you know you need to you know you take take it home. Here's here's the thing saying we promised to 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 buy you a bulb, and uh, I'd gotten home and as I was playing with it, I realized there's a safety switch up top, and because those bulbs sometimes explode when they go out, there is a safety piece of glass that that goes up underneath the bulb housing, and if that glass is not perfectly seated, it's not going to energize the bulb. So as soon as I fixed that, the bulb was fine. I called him up and said, don't worry about it. We're, you know, we're good. Everything's working great. And that, that bulb is, has lasted several years now, but we don't, we don't use it a lot. And hopefully it'll last a few more. Hopefully. All right. Uh, Alexis, Alexis asks, I built a pinhole camera. What is the next logical step? Depends on what kind of photography you want to do with it. Well, I, I talked to Alexis and, to to um, to build on that question, in in camera building terms, what's the next logical step for from a pinhole camera? Film. I mean, she's already using film. She's right. creating she's creating uh, paper negatives. But what's the next logical step? Having a lens. Ah. Uh, How about uh. an actual lens, either an enlarger lens? which you'd have to time out. If you're shooting paper with a larger lens, you're okay to just kind of do like a tintype kind of thing. You uncover the lens, you cover it back up. In larger lenses do not have shutters. They just have the apertures, which make the hole bigger or smaller, and, and you're good to go. The thing about putting an larger lens in a, in a camera is with pinhole, you don't have to worry about focus. Yeah, you can argue that you have to worry about ideal pinhole size for the focal length but when we're talking about in larger lenses we're talking about you need to have that sucker in focus the best way to do that is when you build a camera build a back on it that allows you to put a a ground glass in it and all a ground glass is is a piece of glass that's been frosted on one side you can get a you can get a piece of uh, a plexiglass and you can use fine grit sandpaper to sand it. It's not going to be the brightest thing in the world, but it'll get you there. You can use regular glass, cut it, and then use, um, you know, what we always use to, to create ground glass is, uh, you know, those uh, old rock tumblers. I use that, that, uh, that ammonia, what is it? Aluminum, aluminum grit. I can't remember what the grit is, but it's one of the standard grits that come with every, run-of-the-mill rock tumbler. And then what I do is I, I put a little teaspoon of that powder in the middle of the glass. 
I put a little bit of water on top of that. And then I use another piece of glass, preferably something that's kind of hefty, like maybe a thicker glass coaster or something, something that's flat. And then I'll kind of get in there and I'll, and I'll do like small circles. And then when I think I've done enough, I will clean everything up. I will hold the glass up. I'll, I'll wash it. I'll dry it. I'll hold the glass up to light. And you're going to see where you're missing the ground glass. And then what I do is I take a Sharpie and I kind of color those areas in. And then as I know, I know that as I'm, I'm grinding that, that grit into this, into this piece of glass, I know that I'm, I'm pulling away that, that Sharpie. So therefore I know where I'm, I'm going to focus everything on. I know where I'm going to be, be frosting that glass and so on and so on. You can also, I've seen people use tissue paper. You can put, put tissue paper, maybe, maybe sandwich it between the glass, two, two pieces of glass. And that's going to something. Basically you want something that's going to be a little bit, not opaque, but a little bit less, a little bit less transparent that you can see this image being reflected on it. Now, the important part about this is when you're creating your ground glass back, you need to make sure that when you pull that ground glass back out and you put the back of that camera on that has your paper negative on it, or ideally you're going to create something that uh, that will take a uh, you know tape take a, a a film holder sheet film holder, but you want to make sure that that area where you had focused your image on is exactly where that piece of film or that piece of paper negative is going to be. And another problem is in larger lenses, don't focus. You would need to create either a sliding box design, which is going to be your, your easiest thing. Maybe, maybe you focus with your feet. We talk about zooming with your feet all the time. Maybe you focus with your feet and you move closer or further away until you're in focus of your subject. And then you, and then you shoot. Or, as I said, you create something that, that is kind of a sliding box within a box design that you can use to, to move your, your lens closer and farther away from that film plane and therefore putting everything in focus. Just make sure you can lock that down. You know, you put a, you put a table up, you focus it, maybe you, maybe you put a piece of tape around it or you've got some way to, to lock that focus or mark where that focus was. Then you take it and you put it in a changing bag or a dark area, you put your film in, and then you you can put your camera back out there, pull your lens cap. You know maybe maybe five seconds of exposure, and put your lens cap back on, take it and exp- and develop it. But I think that's the next logical step. And you can go out there and get box cameras, you know brownie cameras. Brownie cameras are are fantastic, and they usually have a they have a fixed lens, and that fixed lens will give you uh give you you know acceptable sharpness from from one from one distance to the next and and the good thing about that is it's it's a box already and it even has a shutter <laughs> the only problem with that is when you're when you're shooting with a brownie camera or a, a little little box camera is it's you've got shutter speeds that are typically for for film and if you're using paper negatives which is totally cool or if you're using maybe you're coating your own gelatin plates whatever that you're going to need to to keep that open for a little bit longer. And the good thing about brownies is they usually have a bulb mode. Not only do they have the apertures that you can you can make smaller or larger, but they have a bulb mode. So as you hit as soon as you hit the lever, it opens up. Hit the lever again, it closes up, and then that's what you can you can use to you know 
give yourself several seconds exposure. Right. What else we got? Holly asks, what kind of camera bags do you use and why? That's a loaded question. (laughs) There's so many different options out there for camera bags. And it, I guess it depends on what we're doing and what mood we're in whenever we're packing our bags. My camera bag collection alone will fit the entirety of our, of our queen sized bed. Yes. And Christine as well. Christine's got several bags. Yeah. And it, We have two bags each that we use the most, but sometimes we just want one camera and one lens with us. Sometimes we want a large variety. When we go on big trips, we want to take a wide variety because we usually have several things planned. So what you're saying is you got to weigh you got to weigh what you want to shoot with where you're going, right? Basically, and what you want to take. If we're taking, am I taking a laptop? Am I taking video gear? Uh, am I, you know, what am I taking? But if you're just taking one camera and one lens, then absolutely you need to, you know, get one of those sling bags that that has one camera and one lens. Right. If you want to take everything, then you take one of those big, giant backpack book bags and jam it all in there. And we tend to use our backpacks quite a lot. Right. But- we have those backpacks. I can't remember. I think it's Kata. I think it's Kata brand. Mm-hmm. And they have the they have the sleeve for the laptop. So when we're when we're out somewhere, we can get images. We can put them on the laptop. We can upload them or or, or process them right, right right away. Um, and they've got a lot of a lot of storage for for film, for batteries, we, for if, batteries, for yeah, for everything. Now, when we when we go on a a a traveling trip using mass transit. We typically use a Pelican, I think it's 1612. It's the Pelican case that, that fits in an overhead compartment of an airline until, at least until they, they shrink them even more. <laughs> and this has this has the, the top in it that has all the zippered compartments. I can put a bunch of film in. I can put a bunch of batteries in. I can put a bunch of accessories in. And then I can put in all the compartments. I can put a drone. I can put... My film camera, I can put my digital camera, I can put every lens that we that we use, and both I have one and Christine has one. But but then you have to worry about what what are you going to use for as, as a camera bag out there? You can't necessarily strap this Pelican to your back, and that's when we'll use maybe our Domkey bag, right? And Domkey is something that basically will will fold and squish flat. And as soon as we're ready to go, we can we can re- reconstruct it and and be good. And then we also each have a messenger bags that we've used. Are, are those are Tenba, aren't they? Yes. And and they hold our laptops and several lenses. It's and and, I, and you know don't don't get something because we said we said it's nice. The number one thing to do, and it's it's always good to. It's always good to visit your local places anyway. But the number one thing to do is call one of your local camera c- camera stores and say, "Look, I'm looking for a camera bag. Can I bring can I bring my goodies and try a couple bags out?" And if they say yes, great. If they say no, then find a different store because you don't need that kind of negativity in your life. <laughs> but that seriously is is what the best thing to do. If if you don't want to have a entirely too big camera bag collection because let's be honest, we never sell any camera bags. <laughs> if you just go and 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 try a couple of them out 
when you're when you're hiking, I can't I can't remember what the name of the what the name of that one was, but we have one bag that's smaller, and when we're hiking, we can put a we can put a water bladder in it. We can put snacks up in the top, and when we're ready to shoot, it goes over one shoulder. It goes it goes cross cross over your chest, and I can grab the bag from from my left, and I can sling it around to my stomach, and and then I have a zipper right there. I can open the zipper up, grab my camera, shoot, 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 put it back in, zipper it, roll it back around, and and keep on hiking. Right. It's un it's unreal some of these camera bags out there, but it all depends on your situation. And what you want, how many lenses you have, how many cameras you have, et cetera. Right. There's a lot of, there's a lot of differences and it all depends on you. Go with a, you know, go with, go with the bag that, that, that is a nice name brand. There's nothing wrong with used. If you want to get a couple different bags uh, used, ideally you go and, and try them out. But don't don't think you need to get a bag for everything you own because you're rarely going to go to a shoot Can or a location and take everything you own with you because that's that's just too heavy. That's too much. Right. Make a decision. I'm going on a hike to see a waterfall. Okay. Well, then take a you know take a a, a medium to wide angle lens. Take yourself some ND filters. Take yourself a tripod. Take yourself a shutter release and a sandwich. Good to go, right? But uh, I've I just I just spoke with a friend last Saturday, and and she was kind of freaking out about oh I bought this new bag but it's not fitting my strobes and it's not fit fitting my my lens and it's not fitting my this and it's not fitting my that and it's like oh well, I need to have my product manuals and I need to have this and that and this and that. Don't get into that mentality where you think you need to have everything. Download your camera manual on your phone. Take the lenses that you want to shoot with. Because I asked her, I said, okay, you brought all this stuff out on a, on a, on a park visit and, and you brought your, your radio triggers and you brought two strobes. What did you think you were going to shoot with strobe? Oh, I don't know. I just, that's just, that's just all my camera gear. It's like, well, learn to take stuff and leave stuff at home because shooting Shooting this versus shooting birds tomorrow versus shooting maybe headshots the next day. You can use the same bag. You just need to know how to pack it for your different scenarios and situations. Right. And I think that's it, Christine. Yep. We're running out of time anyway. It's going going on an hour. So uh, I say we end it. Okay. I say we end it. (laughs) Anyway, we're gonna to want to hear from you guys. Uh, what are your thoughts on the uh, the answers to our listener questions? What are your thoughts on uh, on the lens babies? What are your thoughts on some of the news that we talked about? And how about camera bags? Let us know in the in the comments or send us an email with your uh, with your favorite camera bag and why. And you can connect with us on our Facebook group or through email at podcast at underreglow.com. And as always, your comments may make it into a future episode. As always, a big thank you to everyone for continuing to join us. All the love and support we've received from people liking us on Facebook, subscribing and rating us on your podcast platform of choice. And also a big thank you to our Patreon subscription supporters. Maybe we'll use some of that Patreon money to get some allergy medicine. (laughs) Oh, starting at just a uh, dying here, starting at just a buck. You can get our shows early with our supporters only after show all without ads. Be sure to check out our other supporter tiers, which are geared towards bringing you along 
on our darkroom projects with great rewards. All of our links can be found in our show notes and also on www.underregular.com. And now with episode 41 down, it's been our absolute pleasure spending this time with you. Please be sure to subscribe to Under a Red Glow. And if we've earned your recommendation to any photographers of any other skill level or process, we would certainly appreciate you sharing us with them. I'm completely sure I just butchered that sentence. A big thank you to my co-host, Christine Milliker, and of course, everyone for listening. If you're listening on Patreon or our supporter page, stay tuned for the totally allergy-driven after show. Thanks for tuning in, and we look forward to visiting with you next time. Goodbye. Goodbye.